Folks, let's uh, get ready and start here. <clears throat> we'll have a word of prayer. Father, <clears throat> thank you for uh, this opportunity to meet again, <clears throat> study the book of 1 Corinthians. <clears throat> Pray, Lord, that you will enable us to uh, again think clearly and rightly about your word. We pray for our, our dear brother Ken Rapp, surgery today. Pray that you'll give healing to his, to his body. And we pray for Emily, that you'll help to her to, <clears throat> to uh, comfort Ken and to uh, help him in his recovery. Pray things will go smoothly there. So pray, ask your blessing on our class tonight. As we continue, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I guess you got the email about Ken. Rap. So he had uh, brain surgery. They said he had um, most of the tumor removed. Most of the tumor. So they have to do a biopsy, you know, and see what's going on. So remember Ken and Emily. So <clears throat> we're looking at, <clears throat> I got something in my throat here. Excuse me. <clears throat> I can't get it out for some reason. We're looking at uh, this new section, which is chapters 5 and 6. Uh, call it problems communicated by common rumor. Or, that is, Paul has gotten, maybe that's not the best title, rumor, but he says it's commonly reported among you, commonly reported in chapter 5, verse 1. So it's uh, based on information that he's picked up, he's gotten. Uh, obviously, it's very reliable. Paul wouldn't be writing to them, accusing them of these kinds of things if he wasn't sure that this was happening. <clears throat> and last time we looked at chapter 5, uh, the case of immorality in the church. And now another issue comes up here in chapter 6, and that's lawsuits within the church are taking each other to court. I say here, um, Paul concluded the previous argument by insisting that the church is not to judge those outside, but must judge those inside. That had to do, first of all, with the expulsion of the incestuous man, but it also has to do with another kind of judgment that must take place within the Corinthian church, namely in matters of everyday life, where one member has a grievance against another. The church ignored the outrageous case of incest, <clears throat> but amazingly had no trouble taking one another to court before pagan magistrates, for they were, in Paul's thinking, rather minor matters. Um, so they're taking each other to court, uh, in secular courts, before what I'm calling here minor matters. If, as Paul says, they will one day be judging angels, then certainly they should be able to settle minor issues that come up within the church rather than taking each other to court. Uh, I mean, various ancient authors talk about how that the Greeks were famous for loving to go to court, a very litigious society. I guess you could say the same thing <laughs> today. People, we live in a somewhat litigious society where people take each other to court sometimes over... Uh, the minor infractions. <clears throat> I say Paul seems to be talking about various kinds of property or financial disputes, not criminal cases. 
Uh, Paul wouldn't be talking this way if it's a criminal case. The, uh, you know, he wouldn't be asking the court to judge things or do anything. That, that, that's a question for the state. So we're re reading between the lines and some of the words, I'll call attention to some of the text. It's clear we're talking about what we might call civil matters. And they're apparently minor things, property, maybe some financial disputes. <clears throat> Note, for example, verse 7, why not rather be cheated? That sounds like, you know, some sort of financial maybe. Criminal cases are to be handed by the state, we know, Romans 13. Probably one man in the church had swindled or defrauded another uh, man in the church. Recall Paul's reference in 5.9 uh, where he, he talks about swindlers. Uh, there he mentions swindlers, so maybe someone is defrauding or swindling someone. Um the courts, from what we know, you know, what we read about the courts in the Greek world and the Roman world, were, you know, there was a lot of corruption that went on in the courts, and people of higher status were favored. Uh, you know, in America, we like to think of ourselves, and it's true <laughs> that, you know, uh, we, we try not to discriminate against people based upon their status or their wealth. You know, that... Clearly, people of importance are, you know, are going to get privileges that others don't get. But you know, compared to, no, to a lot of countries in history, if you were a member of the nobility, <laughs> you would never be charged with a crime, no matter what happened. You know, you would just you'd be off. So you know, there is more equality in the United States than what we've seen in countries in, in the history of the world. That's for sure. And in the ancient world, as I say, you know, people of nobility, people of higher rank uh, would get usually privileges. Um, so usually a person who would take somebody to court was a person who of, was a higher rank, a higher social rank. That is, one who was socially inferior wouldn't sue his superior. That just normally didn't happen. You wouldn't, you wouldn't sue someone who was above you on the socioeconomic uh, the culturally scale, you know, that was just normally not done. Um, so it's easily, it's easy to imagine here a richer person in the Corinthian church taking advantage maybe of a poorer person in this way. <clears throat> um, and Paul brings this up in chapter 11. We'll see that he rebukes he rebukes their richer Christians for shaming the poorer ones um, in 1 Corinthians 11. And, you know, James says, but you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? And they are, not the, are they not the ones dragging you into court? See that? They're the ones dragging you into court. So that, we, may, we may want to fit that into what we're reading here. That's the most likely scenario. We've got someone of a higher status, higher wealth, taking someone poor uh, into court in a lesser status. Well, we see the seriousness of the problem here in verses 1 through 3. But if any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? So I say here, Paul is simply horrified by what he has heard. Do you dare? The phrase has a, 
the phrase has a dispute is a technical term for a lawsuit. If anyone you has a dispute has a lawsuit. Um, so um, the problem is that in this case is that the case was brought before the ungodly instead of before the Lord's people. Now the word translated ungodly here uh, is more commonly translated unjust before the unjust. And, and you know, Paul will use that term quite a bit to talk about those who break God's laws. And so it comes to mean something like the unrighteous. The ESV translates unrighteous here. There you take it before the unrighteous. Um, and they're unrighteous. It's these unrighteous who in verse 9 will not inherit the kingdom of God. So uh, verse 1 says, you take it before the ungodly, but instead one brother takes it to, a, to the court, and this in front of unbelievers. So by ungodly here, he's talking about unbelievers. That's what I'm trying to get at here. He's, I mean, ungodly can have all kinds of connotations. But here, ungodly is, you're taking it to the ungodly, that is, people who are not Christians, uh, who are not believers, you know, that has to be taken into account. Um, verse 2, or do you know, or do you not know, that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? See, again, we're talking about trivial matters here. He doesn't tell us exactly what it is, but these are things he considers very trivial. The absurdity of this situation for Paul comes out in this verse where he says that these ungodly who will not inherit the kingdom will be judged in a far more important eschatological judgment, that is a future end-time judgment, by the Lord's people. Yet they are being asked to judge the Lord's people over what he cons uh, considers to be trivial cases. Um, so these unbelievers were going to be judged by us, it says, and yet now you're asking them to judge you, you know. I say, Paul explains, do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? Paul doesn't explain the details of this judgment, nor does anyone else in the New Testament. Maybe it relates to our ruling function in the kingdom, possibly. The one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. We know that in the future millennium that we'll have authority and responsibility here over the nations, you know. So maybe that's what we're talking about. Paul doesn't explain the details here. But obviously this is a very important future judgment end-time judgments versus these sort of trivial cases here. They're trivial. They're insignificant. They add up to zero in light of, you know, this future judgment. They're out of place in the church. Um, now, I'll say more about these. Maybe I should just give you... I think what we may be talking about, I'm, I'm trying to think, you know, of a present-day example. Okay. Let's say that um, uh, Paul and I, we're, we live next door to Aaron, you know? And we're, <laughs> and we're, we're out there and we're throwing this baseball around, you know? And it goes through Aaron's window, you know? And he says, you know, I'm taking you guys to court, you know? 
that's kind of, I think that's what he's sort of, these are sort of trivial matters that at least we should be able to settle. If we can't settle it among us, us three, you know, let the church, bring it to the church and let's, you know, let's get some wisdom and see if we can't settle this, you know, rather should we take it down to the courts and, you know, sue each other and say, we got these three Christians who are suing each other, you know, that, that would be a bad testimony, you know, it'd be a bad testimony of that kind of case. Apparently, Paul sees these as very trivial. Uh, so the twofold sin involved. First of all, going before the secular courts. Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, these trivial things, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? Paul doesn't mean so much that Christians despise pagan judges, but they are the, those people whose values and judgments in the church has rejected by its adoption of totally different standards. To go to pagan courts is to ask those to make a ruling among Christians whose way of life is scorned in the church. I just realized when I'm reading that pagan because, because I'm doing something else that I'm trying to work on right now, and I just realized that uh, <laughs> I, didn't, I don't really define pagan. I'm just so used to the term pagan because I would think if I said pagan to the average person out there, they think of somebody who's a witch or something like that, maybe pagan. But Christians, <laughs> Christians in the first, you know, four or five hundred years, four hundred years, especially five hundred, they referred to uh, the, the people who practiced the Roman religion, the polytheism, as pagans. They called them pagans. And uh, this is throughout Christian literature, throughout historical literature, that when, uh, you know, the Christians came into the Roman Empire, it's a polytheistic, worship of the gods and so forth. And there was a conflict between Christians and the pagans. Ultimately, Christianity in the fourth century became the authorized religion of the Roman world. And that created more, more problems. Eventually, pagans were outlawed. <laughs> they, they, were, they were told that, you know, that they, were, they were persecuted. Paganism was sort of wiped out. So I just realized here when I'm using the term pagan, uh, this is Christian, I'm just thinking about Christian authors do this. When we talk about pagan in this sense, we're talking just about unbelievers who are polytheists, you know, everybody is. There are, there are no atheists in the ancient world, at least, you know, not, not, not obvious ones or, you know, no one in the ancient world, you know, they, they all believe you've got to have some, something that started this thing off. Aristotle had the unmoved mover. You got to have something that got this thing going. Now, modern day atheists think, no, you can have something from nothing somehow or another. You know, you can just, they, they don't really go back that far. They start with just evolution, evolution from inorganic to organic, but they don't tell you how it, there's a big bang, but where'd that come from? You know, so they don't, they don't really go beyond that. That's far enough back so we can put it out of our minds. But the ancients, you don't really find you don't really find atheists. They all believed in a god or gods or something above humans that brought... Yeah, that's right. They all believed that somehow they came into existence. There had to be something. They just didn't just drop here from nowhere. So that's why I'm, I wanted to explain a little bit about pagans going to a pagan court that is an unbelieving court. Verse 5, I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? 
Paul begins with, I say this to shame you. Earlier, he had maintained that his object was to shame them. Not to shame them, I'm sorry, but to warn them back in 4.14. He said, I'm not saying this to shame you, though he said at the time they should be ashamed for their conduct. But he said, I didn't write that. But here, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm writing this to shame you. The object is shame pure and simple. In a church full of pride and arrogance, which thought of themselves as being wise and spiritually superior, he says, is it possible that there is nobody among you, you're so wise, wise enough to judge a dispute between the brothers? So this is biting sarcasm here. You know, man, <laughs> it's a sh you know, it's, is it possible there's nobody among you, you people who think you're so wise? So Paul is trying to get them to see their true condition rather than what they perceive of themselves. And so, you know, Christians like this going to pagan courts, going to un courts, secular courts, over these kind of small matters, is, there's, no, there's no innocent matter. Now, I'm gonna, I'll, when we get to the end, I'll, I'll talk about how this might apply more to us today. It reveals how, how, you know, how lacking in, in uh, you know, really wisdom they were, actually. Verse 6, But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. As in verse 1, the prepositional phrase in front of unbelievers involves bringing such matters before the civil magistrates in Corinth. Uh, but here the, here the issue is the church is sort of airing out its dirty laundry in a public forum. Um, you know, 1 Corinthians 10.32, Don't cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. To stumble means to fall into sin. Don't do anything that causes a brother or anyone to fall into sin, uh, somebody in the church or even an unbeliever. Uh, first lesson is 411. And to, and, and to make, it, make it your ambition to lead, lead a quiet life, you should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and so you will not be dependent on anybody. So again, that's the problem. We're taking these trivial matters, this is a bad testimony, you know, going to court at all. Christians are despised already. I mean, what little people know about them. I remember we, and Sunday morning we've, we've gone through Acts 16, Paul at Philippi, and, and they just, you know, they just really jump on Paul. And, say, you know, these, boy, these Christians are terrible. You know, they're causing us to, leave the Roman religion. And the same thing happens in Ephesus. We'll see uh, uh, we will see in uh, Acts 19. I guess we haven't got there yet, but the riot in Ephesus and all that. I mean, the pagans already, the unbelievers, were really against the Christians already. So Paul doesn't want to stir up any more animosity than necessary. Well, sometimes you have to. If you present the gospel, you give them the truth, and that offends people, that's just the way it has to be. But, you know, you're not, you're not you, this is just bringing shame where you don't have to. So he says in verse 10, the second thing, first you're going to secular courts, and then he says the fact that you have to go to court at all, the fact that, you know, Paul... And I 
and Aaron can't settle this among ourselves, you know. We just threw a ball through his window. The fact that we just can't settle this as brothers in Christ is a sh would be a shame. You know, well, this, is, this is pretty bad. And that's what he's saying here. You, you have to go to court. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have completely defeated, you've completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? See, that's pretty tough stuff there, isn't it? Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? People engage in lawsuits to win, to be vindicated, and to have their rights reasserted. But the very fact the Corinthians have taken their cases to unbelievers, that they have gone to court, means you've already been completely defeated already. Paul's point is that whether they win or lose, the action itself is already a loss. For even if they win, they lose by not being able to endure injury, and the church loses by airing its dirty laundry before the public tribunal. So since this is so, Paul asked this rhetorical question here of the person who brought the suit. We call him the plaintiff, the person who brings He says, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Paul says in Thessalonians, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Don't repay evil for evil. You know. So, you know, the point would be, I think, if, if, if Paul and I were playing baseball and we threw that, we threw that uh, ball through his window, you know, and I don't know, let's say it's, of course, Aaron can fix it himself, but, you know, let's say Aaron. <laughs> I know, but he's not broke. He's not broke. He's, he's, he's rich. He's rich. We know. I know he's rich. But the point is, you know, let's say it cost him $50 to do that, you know. Well, according to this text, rather than, you know, cause a skirmish and take it downtown to court or whatever, Calling the police, you know. I mean, we would be in the wrong. We should say, hey, we'll pay for that error and, you know, we'll, we'll get it fixed, you know, and all that. But if we didn't, even if we didn't, according to this, Aaron should just say, okay, <laughs> you know, I'll, you know. And then I just spread rumors. That you yeah, can't spread rumors. Yeah, can't ruin I mean, it wouldn't be good, but the point is, it's better than taking us down to court airing out this dirty laundry over this sort of trivial sort of matter. Instead, you yourself cheat and do wrong, and this is to your brothers and sisters. Um, so, you know, I, I should have mentioned back there when he said, why not rather be wrong, why not rather be cheated? That, again, brings up the idea of maybe a property or a business dealing, some sort of financial thing like that, maybe. Um, I mean, if somebody, you know, so, you know, in these, kind of, in, in these cases, um, sometimes, sometimes there are hard cases where uh, if you get into an auto accident, uh, with another Christian, uh, and uh, it could be that your insurance company will sue that other person. You know, <laughs> you, you're just kind of, 
it's not really you, it's just that's the way the law works. They're going to sue to recover the damages. You know, I don't think that's what Paul is talking about here in this particular case. Uh, so I'm not saying that a Christian suing is always wrong. It's, I'm not trying, you know, there, there may be cases where it's, it's not, uh, it's not uh, wrong, especially to non-believers, you know, to non-believers. If some non-believer uh, swindles your business out of a million dollars, you're going <laughs> to sue, you know, I mean, that kind of thing. So that's not what we're talking about here. But somehow these are trivial kind of little matters, things like that. And sometimes you, you hear about things like that where Christians get into disputes in churches, they get into fights, <laughs> they, they just can't settle little small matters. I've seen a few cases like this over the years. So this is very bad, you know, for the church at Corinth, kind of a very bad reputation. Paul talks about the basic misconception behind it. Or don't you know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral or idolaters or adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. I say here, wrongdoers speaks of people who engage in a lifestyle of sin, not a single act of sin. So Paul is not saying, he's not saying, don't you know that a person who sins will not inherit the kingdom of God? He's not saying that. There is a, a, a progressive idea here in the original Greek. The NIV is trying to bring it out. Don't you know that wrongdoers, it's talking about a class of people. Paul is saying that those who commit unrighteous acts as a pattern of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those whose lives are characterized by the kinds of unrepentant sins Paul goes on to list, but never truly experienced, have never truly experienced the saving grace of God and thus still are still slaves of their sin. So Paul's point in all this is to warn the Lord's people, uh, Christians, um, not only the person who has wronged his brother, but the whole church. Um, that, you know, you can say this, you know, taking each other to court, these kind of matters he's talking about, you can kind of just slough them off and so forth. But Paul says you got to be careful. We have to be careful about just sinful acts, continuing in sinful acts. Remember, this is what we call perseverance. That is, you know, we, we, we accept people into our church by a profession of faith. We accept their profession. But we, the only way we can judge their profession is by their lives. That's about all we can do is look at their lives. And if somebody has a lifestyle of sin, then, you know, that's good evidence that, you know, it's, it may be good evidence if they, if they won't repent, unrepentant, you know, just continuing to, un, to not repent. It's, it's, it's reason to question that profession, isn't it? It's reason to question it. And Paul is saying, you know, they're, they're taking sin too lightly here. In chapter 5 with the incestuous man, you know, here, this kind of thing. These things, you're taking these things too lightly. When you persist in these kind of things, um, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. 
so the Corinthians have to stop deceiving themselves. Don't allow themselves to be deceived, he says. You know, Do not be deceived. Don't allow yourself to be deceived about this. You know, you can make a profession of faith, but, um, you know, for 13.5, you'll say, finally, examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. In other words, there's so much sin at Corinth by the time it gets to second, there's so many bad things going on that even Paul has to say, hey, wait a minute, <laughs> you better examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Now, we didn't talk about the content of these verses uh, and I won't spend much time on it. It's pretty obvious, sexually immoral. Again, we're not talking about somebody who commits immorality as an act, repents of it, that kind of thing. We're talking about people who live a lifestyle of that. Uh, or idolaters. People who wouldn't give up their idolatry. That was a big problem in Corinth. People wouldn't give up their idolatry. They, they made a profession of faith, but they wanted to hold on to their idolatry. We'll see that going to the temple in chapters 8, 9, and 10. Um, adulterers, men who have sex with men. This is homosexuality. Now, this is, <laughs> this is a verse that gets a lot of attention in our world today because it's a problem for people who are homosexuals and want to be Christians and homosexual, engage in homosexual activity at the same time. That is, there is a whole movement of uh, people who are homosexuals, live a homosexual lifestyle, and want to claim the Bible does not condemn that activity. So there's homosexuals who claim to be Christians, uh, but they want to continue in their homosexual activity their lifestyle, and they, so therefore they're looking through the Bible and they're trying to do something with this verse here. So I, I won't go into all the things they try to do, but it, it just won't work. Uh, there's no translation that doesn't translate this, you know, homosexuality, having sex with other men. Uh, there's no way to redeem that at all. It's just simple and has to be repented of. So, uh, but that's the warning here that we have to be careful about just ignoring our sinful activities. You know, it's, uh, we can all become kind of hardened and callous to our own lifestyle sometimes. You know, we just, ah, it's, it's nothing, you know, everybody does that, you know, kind of thing. So that's what the Corinthians were doing. And we want to be careful that we don't have that attitude. Paul talks about the inconsistency of it in verse 11. And that is what some of you were, these kind of activities we talked about. Some of you were like that. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul does not want to include, conclude with his warning in verse 8 through 10, since it might leave the impression that he thinks all Christians, all the Corinthians were actually still among the wrongdoers. In this epistle, Paul often concludes a warning with a positive note. <clears throat> Thus, he brings his whole matter to a conclusion by reaffirming, and that is what some of you were. So the previous list, sin list in verses 9 and 10, is what the wicked are still. And because of that, because they're still doing those things, they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. 
And those who persist in those activities are in danger, as we talked about. But that's what some of you were, Paul says. Now in Christ you're something different. So, don't li so stop defrauding yourself. Stop, stop, living, stop ignoring these sinful things that are going on in your life. As part of their depravity, I say some people commit homosexual acts that is uh, inclined toward that kind of behavior. They're more inclined. Paul says, however, that this is what some of you were because he believes in the power of God to transform human lives, desires, and inclinations. So the point is, God gives Christians the power to resist our sinful desires, even if we continue to have them. And so when we become Christians, we're regenerated, we're born again, we don't automatically stop having sinful desires. Paul says we have to mortify, the King James says, put them to death. We have to say no to these sinful desires. That's sanctification. And we do that through the Word. You know, we hear the Word, the Word is preached, we read the Word, we try to obey it. Uh, that's, you know, one of the means through prayer, through help from others, we fellowship with others, we're strengthened by them. Um, so um, so the, the point is a Christian does not have to act on their sinful desires. Um, remember sometimes you know, Pastor Ken will talk about this way that uh, Augustine talked about the unsaved condition versus the saved condition. The unsaved are not able not to sin. Uh, non passe, non peccare. I'm sure you remember that from your Latin. Not able not to sin. <laughs> so the unsaved person is not able not to sin. <laughs> but the Christian is able not to sin. Not, he's not saying he won't. He's not. He's not. He's not uh, and when we get to heaven, we'll not be able to sin. We'll be. will not be able to sin. But now we're able not to sin. We have the ability not to sin. Because we have the Spirit of God, we, can, we, have, we have the help of God, so we can say no to sin. We have, you know, God gives us that. Uh, not, we're not saying it's not, not hard. <laughs> uh, we, we're struggle. Uh, a Christian, uh, well, man, we, we're going to struggle with sin, especially if you, you know, were saved later in life and you, like me, Say when I was uh, when I was uh, about twenty-five, you know. Um, so I've often said in my lifetime that the strongest Christians I know are those who are saved as children. And I had to when I when I came along and when I was saved, um, the 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 people who were lauded and applauded the most, I remember, were people often who were saved later in life and had these Damascus Road experiences, you know. I was a drunkard, you know, I was immoral, and God saved me, and you know, and all this. And it's, boy, that's tremendous, you know. And I can remember when I was in college and stuff, and the, and the people who were raised in a Christian family well, not given as much respect, amazingly, you know, because they didn't have those Damascus Road kind of experiences. But in my own observation of this now is that 
those people who had those Damascus Road experiences have more struggles with sin. You know, it's if if you if you have if you've lived a sinful life, you've got a lot of mortifying to do. You've got a lot of you've got a lot of sins you have to say no to. You got to put to death. And it's it's I think it's more difficult. Uh, sanctification is more difficult than if you are raised in a Christian family and you don't engage in those kind of activities and they're not as much temptation, you know, and struggles and so forth. So you can imagine someone who's a homosexual, they get saved. That's going to be a big struggle for them. You know, that's going to be difficult to, to put to death and so forth. Somebody who's an alcoholic and they get saved, that's a tremendous thing to overcome, you know. So, um, the point is, God does give us power to overcome those, but it's going to be difficult. There are going to be struggles. It's going to take sanctif- uh, grace. It's going to take time and so forth. Um, but the point is, we must do that. We must strive to, to uh, put those things to death. I say the rest of this verse gives the basis for this premise, but you were washed... You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul's point is that their conversion produced by God through the work of Christ and the Spirit is what has removed them from being among the wicked who will not inherit the kingdom. These three verbs, washed, sanctified, justified, I think probably speak of various aspects of the initial initial phase of of our salvation. We are washed from all the filth of the list of sins in verses 9 and 10. This is probably a metaphor for regeneration, being born again, we're washed. Remember Titus 3, 5, He saved us through the washing of the rebirth. So the rebirth, being born again, is kind of looked at as a washing from sin and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So that that washing, you've been washed, may, may speak to regeneration, being washed from our sins. We've been sanctified, that is set apart from our sinful past. Uh, definitive sanctification. We've been, the power of sin has been broken. This is Romans 6. So when I said the unsaved person is not able not to sin, but the person who's been saved is in Romans 6, able not to sin. So we've been sanctified. The power of sin is broken in that it's no longer a master that rules over us. We're still sinners. We still have a sinful nature, but we're not ruled like the unsaved person is. We're not under the dominion of sin. We have been justified, that is, declared to be righteous through the imputation of Christ's righteousness to our account. So there's a, you know, an implied command here or an imperative. You know, live out this new life and stop being like the wicked. You've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified. So, you know, don't live like this kind of wickedness. All right, let's come to uh, chapter 6. Another problem. I call it Christian liberty here because uh, maybe it's not the best, but, you know, the, the Corinthians are arguing that at least these men are arguing that they can go to prostitutes as they have done all their lives. And that's just a matter of Christian liberty. You know, to us, we'd say, really? <laughs> but, 
But yeah, that's what's being argued here. So we have uh, uh, Christian liberty and its proper boundaries. 6, 12 through 14. In verses 15 through 17, Paul will argue that one may not take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute, that is, the physical parts of our body. Although some men within the church were going to prostitutes and were arguing for the right to do so. It's unknown whether these were temple prostitutes, in which case Paul may have gotten into this this subject because of his warning about sexual immorality and idolatry in chapter 6, verse 9, or just ordinary prostitutes whose primary clientele was the sailors who docked at Sincrea and Lechium, harbors to the east and west of Corinth, respectively. Remember, I showed these maps before that Corinth was an important trading place because ships came from the east, Jerusalem, you know, Palestine, or uh, the coast of Turkey, what we call Asia Minor, Ephesus, and they would come to Corinth to the, in the Aegean here, um, over here, come into the Aegean, and then they would often, you know, unload their cargo and load it here and go out, you know, to the Adriatic there, go out to Italy and so forth. So there was a lot of commerce that went on, a lot of commercial things that went on there, a lot of sailors and people like that. Um, I say, uh, we do know that, what we do know, we do know is, uh, I guess we should say what we do know. know. What we do know is that men in the Roman world were free to marry, to carry on homosexual affairs, and to commit adultery with slaves. Now, these homosexual affairs were of a particular type in the ancient world. Older men with younger guys was what, what went on. Uh, it wasn't that they were marrying these people. They weren't marrying these homeless, these guys. This was just considered an act kind of dominance. I won't go into more details here, but um, that, that, that went on. You know, for, for wealthy people, uh, uh, people of higher status, they were free to carry on these relationships to commit adultery with slaves. Uh, slaves had no protection from sexual advances at all. Prostitutes and concubines. While a woman caught in adultery could be charged with a crime. So, so a woman caught in adultery could be charged with a crime, but men were free to engage in all, any kind of this illicit activity, what we would call illicit activity. The famous Roman politician and writer Cicero wrote, if there is anyone who thinks that youth should be forbidden affairs even with courtesans, he's doubtlessly austere. I cannot deny it. But his view is contrary not only to the license of this age, but also to the custom and concessions of our ancestors. For when was this not a common practice? When was it blamed? When it was forbidden? The writer Plutarch argued that a wife should be, not be angry with her husband if he's incontinent and dissolute with a paramour or maidservant. She should reason that it is respect for her with which leads him to share his debauchery, licentiousness, and wantonness with another woman. It was a common Roman view that sex within marriage was for procreation, not for pleasure. 
and that sexual pleasure and gratification for men was to be found in relation with slaves, prostitutes, and other people outside of marriage. So we think we live in the wicked age, and <laughs> we do, but it ain't nothing like this. Uh, I mean, I, when I was showing those pictures at Corinth, I didn't show you the one that, I mean, there's, there's uh, advertisements on the streets of Corinth for prostitutes. Go here, you know, advertisements engraved on the stones in Corinth, you know. So this was just the common practice. Can you imagine, you know, here, here's Paul coming along with this ethic, this moral, you know, this was revolutionary. What? Really? This, you know. Verse 12, I, I have the right to do anything you say. I have the right. Notice the quotation marks there. I have the right to do anything you say. The you say has been added by the, if you have the King James, it won't have these quotation marks, but uh, we'll see that um, these become very helpful and they're in all the translations. Now, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. Pastor Ken has talked about this, remember. I have the right to do anything, another quote, but I will not be mastered by anything. Paul does not begin by attacking the Corinthians' wrong behavior. He confronts the theology on which that behavior is based. He could just say, hey, this is wrong, don't do it. But he's going to attack the theology that I just have this right. I have the right to do anything is almost certainly a Corinthian slogan and is indicated as so by the quotation marks in the NIV. This is confirmed by the way Paul cites it again in 10.23. In both cases, he qualifies it so sharply so as to negate it, at least as a theological absolute. So they're saying, their view is, listen, I've got the right to do anything. But Paul says everything is not beneficial. He's not even getting to the sin question yet, really. It's just not everything is beneficial. So that's why I call this Christian liberty. So, it, so even though we're talking about a terrible, sinful situation here, it's applicable to us because the tendency is to say, well, if it's not sinful, I've got the right to do it, and I can do it, and don't tell me I can't, you know. And so Paul says, well, wait a minute, not everything is beneficial. They also say, I have the right to do anything. And Paul says, well, I won't be mastered by anything, you know. Paul does not begin, I say, by attacking, but he attacks the behavior. Uh, verse, the next paragraph, where this slogan comes from is not clear. One contemporary writer said, using the same language as Paul, the wise are permitted to do anything whatsoever they wish. Since Paul himself was a champion of Christian freedom, he talks about freedom quite a bit, but freedom there is... Is, is, is not freedom to sin. <laughs> it's possible that this slogan has been adapted from what the Corinthians have heard from him. Um, I mean, in chapter, Romans chapter 14, he talks about, you know, we're free in the sense we don't have to observe the Mosaic food laws or the Mosaic laws about days. We're not under the law. So we have this liberty, this freedom not to observe the ceremonial law of the Old Testament. 
And in chapters 8 through 10, he will talk, and Pastor Ken has mentioned this several times already. He's, I remember him talking about it in the sermon, but he's talking about the meat offered to idols we'll get to. So um, that there, most all the meat that was purchased, if you went to the meat market, uh, if you went to the... We used to have a meat market in Allen Park called Moss Checks. I don't know what the local one is around here, but there's one in Flat Rock or something, you know, a meat market there. But if you went to the meat market in Corinth, the meat there would have first been offered as a sacrifice in the temple. And Paul will say, you can go buy that meat and don't worry about it. You're free to do that. What you can't do is go to the temple and engage in idolatry. We'll get to that. So, you know, he's talked about freedom so they, maybe they have adapted his slogan, maybe, I don't know. Paul is speaking about Christian freedom, that is freedom in certain non-essentials like food, days, circumcision, not with Christian morals. Another suggestion is that this is another expression of the Corinthians' triumphalist theology, the rich, the idea that they have arrived. Already you have all you want. Already you become rich. We, we don't know exactly where it came from, but they're saying it. The Corinthians, at least some of them, feel that they have the right or authority to act as they please, even if it's contrary to Paul's teaching. They feel they have the freedom to act as they please without restraint. For, this, for Paul, this is not freedom at all, but a form of bondage. With the qualifier, not everything is beneficial. Paul says that freedom is not to be for self, but for others. The real question is not whether an action is lawful or right, but whether it's good, whether it benefits. So Paul is saying true Christian conduct is not based upon whether I have the right to do it, but whether my conduct is helpful to those around me, or is it going to be harmful to those around me? The Corinthians are saying, I have freedom to act with regard to all things. Paul qualifies, yes, but I won't be mastered by anything. Or anybody. If freedom or liberty is absolutized without qualifications, it can become a kind of bondage. There's a kind of self-deception that inflated spirituality promotes, which suggests to oneself that they are acting with freedom and authority, but which in fact is an enslavement of the worst kind. This is obviously true if what one argues uh, for under the banner of freedom is really morally wrong. Jesus said, remember in John 8, everyone who sins is really a slave to sin. Verse 13, you say, again another quote, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. Uh, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By His power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and He will raise us also. In contrast to verse 12, however, where Paul does not agree with their slogan in its absolute form, here he is in essential agreement. Both food and the stomach belong to the present age, and God will do away with them both in the end. But Paul will not let them take this slogan, which has to do with the irrelevancy of food restrictions, and apply it to illicit sexual relations. Their reasoning went something like this, maybe. Since everything's permitted and since food is for the stomach and the stomach for good, after all, God will destroy them both in the end. And since all bodily appetites are pretty much alike, 
That means that the body is for sex and sex for the body because God will destroy them both in the end as well. This is what the, how one commentator fee takes it. I think that's probably pretty good, probably right. But their conclusions are completely wrong on both counts. The body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. The body is for the Lord in the sense that the work of redemption includes the whole person, including the body. If the stomach is irrelevant for future, irrelevant for future existence, the body itself is not. So because of Christ's resurrection, our bodies will not ultimately be destroyed. I mean, they will be destroyed in the sense that we die, we'll, they'll decay and all that. But our bodies will ultimately be resurrected and reformed and re, you know, with a resurrected body, no matter whether they decay and rot in the grave and all that kind of thing, turn to ashes. Um, so that means, he says, our bodies are for the Lord in the present. And so Paul is... Um, is in Paul's view is in contrast to what these Corinthians were advocating to their view of spirituality. Um, that they looked for kind of a spiritual salvation that would be divested of the body. Now, this is pretty understandable if we think about the Greek world, because in the Greek world, um, they viewed any future life as having no material aspect to it. That is, um, you know, we talk about the immortality of the soul sometimes. But that's really, that's an expression that comes from Greek philosophy, actually. That is, the soul's immortal. Uh, the soul's immortal. The body is just going to be done away with and that's done. We don't need that. They, the Greeks have an expression, the body is the prison house of the soul. And they thought, the body is, my, is the problem. The reason I'm bad and evil is because of my body. So if I get rid of that, I'll be a spirit and I'll be a, I'll be, things will be great. But that's, that's, uh, that is not the Christian view. Uh, the earliest Christian creed that we have called the Apostles' Creed says, I believe in the resurrection of the body. So uh, the idea that you know, there's no bodily future existence is a, a pagan idea, a Greek idea. So it's natural they would think that way. They might think that way. They'd say, well, we all know, Paul, everybody knows that the body is not really important, you know, and there's not going to be any future bodily thing. So what I do with my body is not really important. Remember and, and when Pastor Ken got to Acts 17 there and he got to Athens, uh, it says Paul talked about uh, Jesus and the resurrection. You remember Jesus and the resurrection? And uh, they said, why? why? What's that? Remember in G in, in <laughs> resurrection? What's that about? And remember he, Pastor Ken said that Greek word is anastasis. And they thought, uh, he must be talking about Jesus and his his girlfriend, because that's a feminine word in Greek. So it must be Jesus and his, his, uh, his consort. You know, it must be the, the female God. He's, the female. He's talking about these two gods, you know. But when he finally gets down to explain it, they say, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, when they, they sneered. Oh, this is nonsense. Nobody wants the resurrection of the dead. So... Uh, 
forgot to uh, talk about that. Uh, yes, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. Well, there is the uh, sacredness of the human body, Paul says. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. In verses 15 through 17, Paul explains his reformation of their slogan in verse 13. The body is not for sexual morality, but for the Lord by applying it directly to their going to the prostitutes. Verse 15 declares on the basis of verse 14 that the bodies of believers are members of the body of the Lord and therefore cannot be joined to a prostitute to become members of her body. Both are bodily relationships that imply a form of union. The one with Christ through the res His resurrection, the other with the prostitute through intercourse. And so Paul's point is that these are mutually exclusive. Therefore, they must, he'll say in verse 18, flee from, free, flee from immorality. He'll say, flee from it. Because you can't take your body and unite it to a body of a prostitute. Verse 16, do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Paul now proceeds to explain verse 15, stating, starting with the sexual union of the man with a prostitute. He who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body. Why is that true? For it said, the two will become one flesh. Contrary to the common view in Roman culture that sex with a prostitute was an insignificant matter, Paul disagrees, citing Genesis 2.24. There is no such thing as a casual sex that has no enduring consequences, even when the partners have no intention of forming a mutual attachment. Paul argues that it creates a bond that has significant ramifications. Now this is really contrary to the age in which we live, where we're, people are constantly being told and taught that the sexual act is just a physical act like eating food. Nothing more, nothing less. That's all it is. So do it all you want, it's good for you. While the union of man and wife as one flesh implies far more than merely physical union, Paul's concern here is strictly with the physical aspects of the union. To have sexual intercourse with a prostitute involves an illicit sexual joining of one's body to that of another. It's not the sexual union itself that is incompatible with union with Christ. It's a union with a prostitute. This constitutes a bodily union with someone who is not a member of Christ. A prostitute whose body, you know, unless she gets saved, is not destined for glorification. Now, Paul cites Genesis 2.24 here. But he doesn't mean that sexual intercourse itself creates a marriage. Uh, marriage is a covenant relationship, a covenant relationship that includes a public commitment to each other. Two people commit to each other. They do it in public. It's legal in some culturally acknowledged way that sets them apart as husband and wife. 
I say in verse 17, the illicit union with the prostitute is contrasted to the believer's union with Christ. But whoever is united with Christ is one with Him in spirit. The believer is united to the Lord. It may be that the Spirit is a reference to the Holy Spirit. Paul says in 12.13 that believers are made part of the body of Christ by the Spirit. Remember that we're baptized by one Spirit so as to form one body. Whether Jews are Gentile, slave or free, we've all been given the Spirit. So Paul's point is that the physical union of a believer with the prostitute is not proper because the believer is already united to the Lord through whose resurrection one's body has become a member of Christ by His Spirit. Well, I've gone over here. Let's stop here and I'll come back and kind of clarify this a little more here. Let's see. Do we meet next week? Next week is Thanksgiving, right? So two weeks from... uh, from uh, today, okay? Lord willing.